Okay, so last time we were together, we finished up talking about some elements of election, and we were speaking about various elements of predestination as well, but we hadn't actually dug into the, the Greek as far as predestination is concerned, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Where does, we, we've talked about what predestination means uh, a little bit. We've talked about what election means, that election is about purpose, it's not about salvation as we see it in Scripture. And I had mentioned last time that we see the same thing with predestination or foreordination, we, call, we were calling it. That it's something that God um, does do, but just because he, he does predestined things doesn't mean He has predestined everything. Nelson. Indicative? Well, when we say something is indicative of something else, it means it indicates that or it, it shows that. Um, as far as the moods are concerned, when we talk about the indicative mood, it's kind of the same idea. It's the mood that says what is. It's the mood that indicates what is. Whereas the subjunctive uh, mood is showing what could be. Does that make sense? What does indicate? What does what? Oh, indicate? Yeah. To indicate means to show or to reveal or to... Exp- I don't know if express would be... I'd say to show or to reveal would probably be pretty pretty uh, um, accurate. So it's, it's the mood that reveals or shows what is already. It's the mood of reality. Good? Okay. Um, so, oh, no, okay. So the question then becomes, where does foreordination or predestination touch the church? If we're saying that predestination is not unto salvation, that God does not predestine people to be saved, that there is such thing as free will, that there is such thing as volition, then where does predestination come in? Because we do see it. Sarah? Volition. I don't know if anyone in here needs the definition of volition, but um, it means to use one's free will, to exercise one's will, um, is the definition of volition. Um, yes, to exercise free will or to exercise one's will. The term used in the Bible is to predestinate. Um, can anybody give me the Greek word here? Audrey. Pretty close. No. Uh, yeah, proridzo or praoridzo. I, I, because it doesn't have the accent there, I probably say it wrong. I say praoridzo because of the double omicron there, but praoridzo, pra, I don't know. I don't know how the Greeks would have, would have done the double omicron there. I say praorizo, but that implies another accent that's not there. So, um, I guess I can't even tell you how that one um, comes out. But I say praorizo, praorizo, um, kind of melding those two omicrons together. It literally means to predest, to predetermine, to predefine, or to foreordain. And it's used six times in the New Testament, and we're going to look through these together. Four times, and of course this is in the King James, it is translated predestinate. 
Uh, the first time we see it, as far as predestinate is concerned, is in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For whom he, that's God, did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now this is the most difficult one for the, the person that believes that, that man has free will and his salvation. This is the most difficult one for us to try to explain. Because we see here the, the idea that God has predestinated, he has foreknown, and then he has predestinated. But this is why verse 29 is so important. Now, we talked about foreknowledge last week, right? That was our, that was the whole point of last week, was we were speaking about foreknowledge. And foreknowledge was this word here. Can anyone read me that Greek word? Audrey. Right, prognosin. Right? And that is very similar to the word that we have today, prognosis, that we talked about last week. And this means to foreknow. This has nothing to do with choosing. This has everything to do with knowing what's going to happen beforehand. And we, we said quite clearly there's no debate about the fact that God knows what's going to happen, right? This is not a debate. God, God foreknows everything. God is in eternity future just as He's in eternity past, just as He's with us right now. He's everywhere at all times. He's already rejoicing with us in heaven. He, he was, he, he's, he's still at our birth. He's, he's everywhere at once, but He's outside of time. Okay? So, whom He did foreknow, that's those that He knew would come to Christ, them He did predestinate to salvation, right? That's not what it says. He did predestinate what? to be conformed to the image of His Son. Those who He knew would accept Christ as His Savior, to them He gave a particular end. These people have a predestinated end. And that end is that one day we'll be in Christ, we'll stand in Christ's likeness. We'll be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the end for all who will accept him. And then it says, and then it says that, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, that Christ is the firstborn among many, and we are the many as the church. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, not to salvation, but be, to be conformed to the image of Christ, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, what we see here is those that he foreknew, he predestinated to be conformed to the image of Christ. Those that were predestinated, he called. And those that were called were justified. That's The call is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The call to salvation. The justification, of course, is the moment of salvation. And those who justified, he also glorified. That's actually looking future, right? Because we haven't even, that hasn't even happened yet. But you know what's missing here? What's missing here is the idea that the only ones who are called are the ones who were foreknown, predestinated, and would be, would be justified. Do you see how there's a logical leap there that says just because this verse says that those who 
were foreknown, were predestinated not to salvation, but to be conformed to the image of Christ. And just because they were predestinated, they were called. You see how there's a logical leap to say, well, they must have been the only ones that God called? No, all this is saying is those that were predestinated were called, and in the scope of this transaction, they were called, justified, and glorified. This is the, this, the transaction that takes place to those who God has foreknown and predestinated to be conformed to the image of Christ. It doesn't say anywhere that God has not given a similar call to those whom He has foreknown would never accept Him. It does not say that. Nor does it say here that where God predestinated those that would be saved to become conformed to the image of Christ, God made those get saved. God overrode their will. God is simply looking from eternity past and eternity present and eternity future, seeing who is going to be there. And we're seeing here in this verse an illustration or a... a um, um, Enunciation, I guess. I don't, I don't know quite what word I'm looking for. I'm, I'm searching for the word. But what we see in, uh, um, enumerated here, what we see taught here, is that those who are saved go through the transaction of being called, justified, and glorified unto the predestinated purpose of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Nowhere in these verses does it even insinuate that the only ones that are called the only ones that are reached out unto are those who God knows will be saved. Nor does it say anywhere in this verse that God predestinated them unto justification, does it? No, predestinated them unto the end. Unto the end, not to the beginning. And that is the, this is the trickiest verse in the Bible in regard to this word, this word predestination, because it, it lends itself to this idea, but it only lends itself to that idea if you don't recognize that so much of the Bible teaches that man has free will. And that when the Bible says many are called but few are chosen, that means that not everyone who is called is chosen. And when the, when the Bible says these things and Jesus cries out to Jerusalem, 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 how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathered her chicks, but ye would not. You were not willing. We see free will. And these verses don't negate the possibility unless we interpret out of them the possibility of free will. And that's just misinterpreting Scripture. Questions? on this, this particular verse. I spent more time here because this is the tricky one. After this, there's not even a question. This is the only one that, that, that even poses a question mark. Okay, good. No questions. As my old teacher used to say, either that means I explained it really well or you're also lost. You don't even know where to, what to ask. So uh, I'll, I'll hope for the former. Ephesians 1.5 Having, and this is speaking, blessed be the, the Lord God and all of these things, and speaking of God, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Uh, having predestinated us. Who's Paul writing to in the book of Ephesians? Mason. No, no, not in this case. That's, that's the book we're in now. I, I'm, I'm throwing you off here. Yeah, First Peter's written to strangers, scattered abroad. 
Um, this one is Ephesians. I, I'm, I'm kind of giving it away, right? Who, who's Paul writing to here? Sarah? Believers. Believers where? In Ephesus, right? So, so he's writing to a church. He's writing to those who he anticipates to be believers. He's writing to a group of believers. And he says that we have been predestinated. He's speaking to a believing group. Then that they have been predestinated unto the adoption of children. Now, we talked last week about the fact that adoption has not happened yet. I thought we said we were going to cover that. Um, Yep, so we'll cover that in a little bit. But, but our adoption has not yet happened. And we talked about positional, versus, that, that, that positionally we are certain things. We are saved positionally. We are adopted positionally. In Romans chapter 8, we saw that we are glorified positionally. We are already positionally everything that we're going to be one day in Christ. And so we are as good as there already. But while we say that, we recognize that in our linear way of living, some of these things haven't happened yet. We're predestinated unto the adoption of sons, the Bible tells us. But there's nothing in this verse that says that this means that we didn't have a choice to enter into this group that is predestinated. The we there doesn't have to be you from the beginning of time had no choice in getting in, in this adoption. It means that God has elected, predestinated His church and all who would come into His church to be conformed to the image of Christ, to the adoption of sons, all of these things. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, we see it. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory, and I love this phrase here, who first trusted in Christ. Do you see the order there? You first trusted in Christ, and then you were predestinated according to the purpose to be to the praise of His glory. You see how, how clearly Paul tried to paint it, that you first trusted in Christ, then you were predestinated to be conformed, or to be uh, to the praise of His glory? That's when you were, you were directed to this new purpose. That's when God who foreknew you predestinated you. That's, that's the idea here. Yes, you, you, you can say that you've been predestinated from the beginning of time. You can say that because God foreknew you. And then we see in Romans 8 whom He predestinated, then He called, and then He justified, and then He glorified. And, and we, we can see that, that perspective. But then we see Paul also say that those who first trusted in Christ then became predestinated unto things, right? And so we, we don't need, and, and, and remember what we haven't seen here, trusting in Christ was not a part of the predestination here or anywhere else. Or anywhere else. Keep looking for the verse that says we've been predestinated unto salvation because you're not going to find it. Um, so that, those are the four occurrences of the word praorizo as it, as it's translated in our King James predestinate. Uh, one time it's translated determined before. Acts 4.28, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. This is actually uh, a prayer to God saying that God had determined before by his counsel things that would be done. 
Um, one time it's translated ordained. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-8 through 8 says this, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, that's those that are, are complete in Christ, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the, wor- before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So here, this says that the gospel of Jesus Christ was preordained or predestinated. That God ordained the hidden wisdom, the wisdom of God, this path of salvation we talked about Sunday night, right? Apart from the law, that the law was there to lead us to this, to the hidden mystery, to the mystery of God that was ordained before the world unto our glory. The gospel has been ordained in the heavens since the beginning. There's never been another way. And then, of course, I give you these. What is missing from any of these uses of God's foreordination being chosen to accept Christ? Romans 8, 29-30 tells us that we are ordained to be conformed to the image of Christ, that those who were foreknown and foreordained unto sanctification were then called, and maybe at several points in his life, this engaged his will. That's the calling, the engaging of his will in the process. Those who, or those of the foreknown elect accepted this call and were justified. That's the moment of salvation. And we mentioned already, Matthew 20, verse 16, we saw this in another lesson earlier, that there many are called, but few are chosen, that there are those who can resist the call. And then those who were justified then began fulfilling their predestinated purpose of being sanctified. I'm going to... Yes? Few accept Christ. And the word chosen, what other word have we been using that means chosen? Well, Elect. Many are called, and as a matter of fact, that's what the word means. We, that's why, why we came across it earlier. Many are called, but few are elect. And this is good, because this will give us a, a moment to review and make sure that we understand here. Who are the elect? Believers. How did we become elect, Mason? Salvation. Through salvation, right. So, election is not about being saved. What is election? You got it. Chosen for a purpose, right? Not for a not to be saved, but to a purpose. And our election is that we would be to the praise of the glory of His grace, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would be rightly related to God so that we can show the world how to be rightly related to God. That's our election. So Jesus said, many are called, but few are elect. Many are given the opportunity, but few enter into this special group known as the church who become the elect when they enter into the church. The same way that when you swear that oath to uphold the Constitution, all that stuff, you become one of the elect Marines, right? 
You, you go through the training, you do everything that you're asked to do, some make it, some don't, and only a, a select few become the elect. They are elect because they've entered in. They weren't elect before they entered in. Yes, absolutely. And that's, that, that is the, the overriding idea here, that those who, who are not elect are not a part of the church. And if they're not a part of the church, it's not because God didn't choose them or want them, it's because they rejected Christ. So they rejected election. Many are called, few are chosen. That verse makes no sense if you don't have a free if, if there's no such thing as free will. That verse you can't even you can't explain that verse outside of free will. You just can't. Um, we talked about uh, Ephesians 1.5, God foreordained those who would enter into the church unto the adoption of children, an event which is yet future. And this occurs when we receive our resurrected body, Romans 8.23. And not they only, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. The redemption of our body is the moment of adoption. That's when we will truly be redeemed. See, we're not even technically along the timeline of events redeemed yet. Fully redeemed. Redemption is a future event. Adoption is a future event. Certain, amount, certain elements of salvation is a future event. Now, we've been saved from the power of sin already. And we could say we've been saved from the penalty of sin, although again, that's in a manner of speaking yet future. It is certainly yet future that to be saved from the presence of sin. We have been saved. We will be saved. We are being saved as we live every day in the power of Christ and in fellowship with Him. There's this perpetual salvation from consequences of sin, salvation from the power of sin over our lives. That's a perpetual process. So when the Bible talks about us being saved, um, it doesn't mean that if we fall short, we fall short of justification. But when we fall short, we fall short of salvation from the power of sin. We, we put ourselves under the power of sin rather than being delivered from the power of sin through the power of the Spirit. And then Ephesians 1.11, God foreordained the church to be to the praise of His glory, and we mentioned this already, who first trusted in Christ Acts 28 speaks of the crucifixion as an event that was foreordained, that um, um, God foreordained Jesus' crucifixion. Now, this does not demand that God overrides the will of man, but that Jesus would go to death regardless of who was or wasn't involved. So regardless of whether or not Judas chose to betray Christ, Christ would have gone to the cross regardless of whether or not Peter chose to deny Christ, Christ would have gone to the cross. Regardless of whether or not Pilate chose to, um, to accept or reject, he was going to go to the cross. It was a foreordained event, and we know that this, Revelation 13.8 says that Jesus Christ was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This event was, had to happen. And God chose the perfect time and the perfect circumstances with which He knew it would happen. 
And it happened. Because it had to happen. Because Jesus had to die. If He didn't die, then there was no redemption. And then um, 1 Corinthians 2, 6-8 speak of the Gospel being foreordained. Very similar to Jesus Christ being foreordained to die. Um, both of those go hand in hand, of course, because the Gospel is Christ. Any questions on predestination for ordination? Okay, good. Alright, looking back at our uh, diagram here. So that was all the Father, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And we just had to, we had to, to settle that word foreknowledge here. Um, foreknowledge. Uh, so remember where we are here. To the sojourners scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is with reference to. So we are elect with reference to God's will. Now we move into the Spirit's role in our election. Elect in, and you'll notice there, I, may, I, I believe it to be, I interpret it to be an instrumental of means. In other words, we could replace this in with by means of sanctification of the Spirit. By means of or in sanctification of the Spirit. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit and His role in the Christian's election. Elect in, and I put likely by means of. Now remember, when we're talking about syntax, there is always a little bit of interpretive um, opportunity there. It's, it's, what, it's the, the usage that I believe, um, based upon scholars and their general understanding of Greek usage, it's the usage that I believe is probably most, most likely. Nelson? That hand? Uh, just maybe back up a little bit. Sure. Slain. Right, so the question is, if, if the Jews had used their volition to not pursue Christ's death, what would have happened then? And whenever we, whenever we consider that, of course, we're considering a hypothetical, and what we understand is that, um, as, as I kind of mentioned, that God chose the time because, I believe, God chose the time and the climate and everything because it was the time where he knew this would happen. Uh, he, he chose the, the circumstances w- within which Jesus would come into the world knowing that in this climate they would reject him. But, that being said, um, if, if we do assume that the Jews volitionally chose... Um, well, if they, and this is something that Jesus Christ said here um, several times during his ministry. He, he, and there's debate as to how it would have worked out. But what if the Jews had accepted their Messiah? Jesus Christ came saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It is, it is ready to go. And so dispensationalist thought typically believes that had the Jews accepted their Messiah, 
that um, Jesus would have likely been slain by the Romans, apart from Jewish will even, as maybe a, um, a competitor of some sort to the, to the Roman power. And then Jesus would have immediately died, risen three days later, and then immediately redeemed his people because they had accepted his kingdom. And if they accept his kingdom, that, that's the thing. He came offering the kingdom and they rejected it. So either Jesus was giving a backhanded offer, not knowing that they're, you know, you're not going to take it, so I'll offer it. You know, kind of that idea that you expect somebody not to accept something, so you offer it, and you don't really want them to have it. And when they say sure, you're like, well, wait, 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 no, I didn't really want you to have it. I was just trying to be polite. You know, can I, can I offer you something? And they say sure, and you're oh. you know, I was just trying to be polite. Jesus wasn't just coming being polite. All right, that, that's silly to think that, isn't it? I mean, isn't it silly to think that Jesus, that Jesus sent John the Baptist saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Literally, he's saying the kingdom is coming. And everyone says, yay, the kingdom is coming. And then Jesus comes and says, the kingdom is coming. And everyone says, yay, the kingdom is coming. And then he says, oh, by the way, it's still thousands of years away. I think Jesus meant what he said. The kingdom, I am offering the kingdom to you. And it's interesting because as you trace Jesus' message through Matthew, he preaches the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom until a certain point. And the point is when you hear the woe unto you. All the woes, scribes and Pharisees, Bethsaida, Chorazan, if the things preached to you would have been preached in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in, in sackcloth and ashes. And then after that point, you don't hear any more preaching about repent for the kingdom is at hand. After that, you start hearing him preparing. He kind of enfolds into his disciples and begins preparing them for something different. It's like he came presenting the kingdom and when they finally rejected him, which by the way, all of those woes is right after they said he cast out devils by the prince of devils, by Satan. When it got to the point where they were attributing his works to Satan... That's the point, I think. That's the straw that broke the camel's back where he said, okay, this is complete heart rejection here. And until he had complete heart rejection, he kept preaching the kingdom. When that happened, he started preparing his disciples for something different. And that something different would be the church age. Now, we knew, he knew it would happen. But just like Jonah, right? Jonah went preaching in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Was that a false message? No. In 40 days, they were going to be destroyed. But then things changed when they repented. God repented, not of his overriding purpose. His judgment and his justice remained intact. He repented of the evil that he was going to do to them, and he allowed, he spared them. The message of destruction was 100% until the will of man altered God's direction. Not, not His will, His direction. God can do that. God doesn't alter His overriding will, but He does alter His direction. And in the same way, I fully believe with all my heart, and this is the only thing that, that really reflects properly the character of God, that God came, when Jesus came saying the kingdom is at hand, giving every indication that the kingdom was coming. That, the, that, that it was here, that it was ready. He wasn't just giving this coded 
backhanded, silly thought. And, and it wasn't just, well, the kingdom is going to come when you get saved, right? Because that's not the kingdom that they knew. That's not what they understood. That's not what the prophecies had said. The prophecies told them that there would be a time where God would rule and reign over them in righteousness, where God would destroy all of their enemies. That hasn't happened yet. And so that's, that's typically the argument, is that, well, the kingdom means that we'd get saved and we'd become kingdom citizens and God would rule and reign over our hearts, right? And He is on the throne of our hearts. And it's true. It's true. But if, we, if, if that is it, if that is all that God was promising, then the Old Testament really gets confusing. <laughs> because you have all of these promises of physical kings. And you have all of these promises of sitting on thrones. And of, of Zion and Jerusalem becoming, uh, deli- being delivered. And of God redeeming not Israel, but Jacob. Right? Jacob, the, the non-covenant name for the father of the children of Israel. And you have all of these promises. And if it's all just spiritual in nature, then what do we do with all of that? And next thing you know, we're allegorizing everything. And it's all just, it's all just a bunch of symbolism. And then none of it matters anymore at all. It was all just a bunch of symbolism. But if it's true, and if there is a kingdom coming then all of that prophecy meant something. And when Jesus Christ came saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it meant something. And when they, they wanted the king to come, all the way, even, even after Jesus... Now here's the thing. Okay. If Jesus was just speaking allegorical, spiritual... Now, Jesus is being arrested. Judas Iscariot betrays him. Peter cuts off the ear of one of Caiaphas's guys. Jesus puts it back on, says, no, my, you know, you know, this, is, this is not what we're doing here. He stands before Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. All of these things. If it was all allegorical, then even after he died rose again. He teaches His disciples for 47 days. 40, 50 days in total. It was 43 days or something once He was finally revealed and went up to Galilee and such. When all of that was done, they looked at Jesus and they said, will you now at this time restore your kingdom? Now, they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet, so they wouldn't have fully understood everything still. But even at the very, right before he ascended into heaven, they said, will you now restore your kingdom? And he didn't say, you fools, you don't get me. It's all about the Holy Spirit and Jesus living on, on the throne of your heart. He said, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons that are in my Father's plan. He didn't, he didn't correct them and say, no, 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 no. He said, it's not for you to know the time that I will restore my kingdom. Seems like a strange response if the kingdom was all allegorical. Doesn't it? It seems a little weird that that point, 50 days after his, his death, 47 days after his resurrection, right before he ascends, ascends into heaven, right before the Holy Spirit comes down, right before all of these things are about to happen, 
And they say, will you now restore your kingdom? Why didn't he say something to the effect of, it's coming very soon, or, or, or wait at Jerusalem until it comes? He did tell them that. But he said, wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, wait in Jerusalem for the kingdom. He said, it's not, in, it's not for you to know the timing of my Father as pertaining to the kingdom. So I personally believe, and this is typical dispensational thought, that Jesus was promising and offering a kingdom. And it was rejected by the Jews. Had they accepted it, somehow, and again, likely, the Romans would have killed him. He would have died. He had to die, right? He had to die. He had to be buried. He had to raise from the dead. He would have risen. He would have ascended. He would have descended and taken his throne. Well, we don't know how it would have happened. Um, but what I'm saying theoretically is probably the same people would have crucified him as in Pilate and, and such. But as you look at the New Testament, it becomes pretty clear in the book of Acts that the Jews were the ones that compelled that crucifixion, right? Pilate didn't, they didn't care. They didn't, it didn't need to happen. They, they, they did it because the Jews wanted it. And the Jews said his blood is on our hands. And even after, in, in, Stephen's, in Stephen's account, he, he says that, he, as he's talking to the Sanhedrin, he says, you crucified the King of Glory and they were just smitten with conviction. So much so it says they gnashed their teeth and, and then of course they stoned him to death. So the Jews are responsible historically by their own admission for Jesus' death. Even though the Romans were the ones that crucified him, the Jews compelled it and they said, his blood is on us. Now, had, Je- had the Jews accepted him, we don't know what would have happened, but it's possible that if the entire Jewish nation is now following this Messiah... And they say, yes, we accept him. We accept the message. We believe on his name. He is our Messiah. He is the one that is coming. And they repent and they get, get right and they believe on him unto salvation and the entire Jewish nation, which will happen one day, Romans chapter 11, and so all Israel shall be saved. But th- th- if that had happened, most likely the, the Romans would have felt very threatened. And Jesus, again, without any resistance, because he, he did not resist, would have gone to the cross. That this time, perhaps, the Romans being the compulsion. We're going to put you on the cross. This is something we want because we feel you're a threat. And his, his followers would not have fought, even though the whole nation would have been behind him, they would not have fought because they accept him as their Messiah and he says, don't fight. And so they wouldn't have fought and he would have gone to the cross and he would have told them, I'll be back. And they would have believed it or not, understood it or not, but it would have happened. And then he would have died, buried, raised from the dead. And then either, I don't, uh, I, I would have, um, I'm trying to think if there's any theological necessity of the ascension. I don't think so. So he probably wouldn't have even needed to ascend. He just would have, um, of course, he didn't have his body yet when he appeared into them. I don't know if he would have received his, his resurrected body until ascension. Either he, sir. Well, when he appeared to Thomas, 
They couldn't touch him yet because he had not he had not ascended unto his father, he said. Well, he, he, well, oh yeah, 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 you're right. Right, to Mary. He had, he had his body when he appeared to Thomas, right, because Thomas touched him. But he had not had it with Mary because he hadn't, he just resurrected, hadn't ascended unto his father yet. So, right, so, likely ascend unto his father, get his resurrected body, and then establish the kingdom. Uh, right, right there. Um, pressure, political pressure, trying to make sure that the Jews stayed calm. Uh, there's a debate there. Um, he washed his hands, right? And said, this man's blood is on your hands. I wash my hands of this, the blood of this innocent man. When Jesus is being crucified, there was a plaque put above him which said, Jesus, King of the Jews, put there by Pilate in three languages, in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, and they complained about it. Why didn't you put, said that the charge was, he said he was King of the Jews. And Pilate said, I put what I put. Deal with it. Did he believe? Well, is, is the blood washed from his hands? There's a real debate about that. People say, well, you can try to wash the blood from your hands, Pilate, but it doesn't change the fact that you sent him to his death. I can see that. But then there's a part that says, he said, this is an innocent man. Nelson. Did Jesus Christ stand the cross for that sin if he did? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yep. So, Pilate had every chance to believe just as much as anyone um, up until the day of his death, even if it wasn't at that moment, maybe it was at that moment. Either way, it's it's under the blood, and so if Pilate had extended true belief that this was Messiah, that Jesus died for the sins of the people, that he was the King, um, then he 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 would have been saved just like anyone else. We just don't have enough textual evidence to know. Yeah. Um, the, of the crucifixion, we know that there was one Roman centurion that said, um, when the earth shook, um, you know verbatim, truly this was the Son of God? Is that what he said? Something to that effect? One of the centurions said that? Sounds pretty pretty uh, definitive that he, he may have believed. I, I, definitive he may have. It seems like he may have believed. Um, the centurion who said that. Um, Pilate may have believed. Um, I'm trying to think. There were, I'm sure there were many Jews who were in the mob saying, crucify him, crucify him, that would eventually come to a saving knowledge of Christ. That of, of the thousands that were saved over the next many years, um, likely many of them. Who knows? Maybe even Saul of Tarsus you know, was in that group yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, we, we just don't know. But there, and, and how, how can we be so certain? How can we be so certain that those who crucified Christ were just as great of candidates for salvation as anyone else? 
Robin. Yeah, sitting sitting on the right hand of the Father. Um, I I think that that we can, and and this is why you know when we talk about this whole hypothetical, here's the thing: all the way back to Daniel, we see promises of the seven years of tribulation, right? We, we prophecy tells us that there that there's no way that Jesus would have come for his people right away, and if he did, then the the seventy weeks that are presented in Daniel. Messiah is cut off, it would have gone into an immediate seven years of tribulation, right? It, the, the church age might have been gone, but the, the, the seven years of tribulation still had to be there. But the seven years of tribulation are for the purpose of chastening Israel back to himself. So those seven years would have been a moot point had they not rejected him. So as we look back in, in, in the, over the scope of things, the reason why, in a manner of speaking, we can say it this way, and, and follow me here, this hypothetical is silly, is because the way it happened was the way that, I mean, God told them it was going to happen this way. And the, the prophets didn't understand that. What's, what's all this about, you know, uh, the, the servant of the Lord, his face being marred beyond recognition? What's all this about him being bruised and stricken and smitten of God? Uh, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. What, what, what is all this about? What is this? I'm sure Daniel was really confused about these 70 weeks. What is it about these last, this last week of this prophecy here? What's going on? What is this about um, Messiah being cut off at the 69th week? All of these things that were very, very confusing. And, and then as we, as we go throughout prophecy, we find that that seven, that the, the, um, you know, we, we see in the prophecies that he, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced and they shall weep for him. And the idea being that they, the ones that pierced him, will weep for him. All of it points to the fact that Israel would reject her Messiah, which is what happened. And so when we look at it prophetically, it doesn't make any sense that Israel would have accepted their Messiah. So we are definitely very hypothetical here. Um, the idea that Jesus uh, had to uh, complete the process by sitting on the right hand of the Father. We see uh, that he was begotten again at the moment of the resurrection, or begotten, not begotten again. That he was he, uh, he took the title of the only begotten Son of God. Um, definitely, he needed to sit at the right hand of his Father as that uh, that element, that final element of approval that God has accepted his sacrifice and and. Um, I think it's it's you know be comfortable to say that yeah that would have been there um, how it would have all transpired you know again we're just playing games but Nelson Mm-hmm. That could have happened at that point in history. So, do you think that it's possible that they had their free will 
Absolutely, yes. I, uh, the question, is it possible that the Jews, even with the prophecies, had their free will? Yes. And remember how we look at this here. Prophecy is telling you what will happen, not telling you what God has made happen. Right? So, the idea that God was in eternity future, knowing what would happen, knowing the choices that would be made, and then telling Daniel, this is what, these are the choices that are going to be made, and this is the outcome. It does not threaten man's free will at all. Now, that's, and, and that's the thing with prophecy, is nobody has it down. The, the future, why, why didn't God just make it so clear what is going to happen in the tribulation? You know, there's all this stuff uh, about, you know, microchips in the hands and microchips in the forehead, and everyone's like, we can't, oh, that one, the screensaver. We can't do that because that, that's the mark of the beast. Well, that's an assumption. But I don't think it's valid. Now, I'm not saying that that won't be a part of it, but do you know what? The Bible says that the mark, it seems to imply that the mark will be very physical, 666. Not a, when you you read the microchip, it's going to pop up a 666 on the screen, that it's going to say 666. That, 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 That number will be there. And so the idea that it has to just be a microchip, that's just an inference. We don't know that. We can't say that because people want to put microchips in their hand that they're selling out to the devil. And prophecy is by nature ambiguous, a little bit ambiguous. And it's a little bit ambiguous because God's going to bring it to pass in His way and in His time. And it's when we look back. See, prophecy is meant to validate the truth. It's not meant... God, God doesn't need us to know the future. There's nothing about that that benefits us except to, to have the impetus of serving Him, to, to be driven to serve Him because we know something's going to happen. And we know a, a general idea of what it is. But prophecy as a whole is to tell us, hey, when this comes to pass, exactly as I said it was going to come to pass, this is what you can know. My word is true. And if my word is true, then live it and obey it. Nelson. I'm sorry. The, the Lord never interferes with our free will. Oh, interferes? I believe he. I believe he does. I believe God interferes with our free will. And, and and what I mean by that is this: Saul of Tarsus is walking on the road to Damascus, and God says, "I want this guy. What will get him to accept me?" God has every right to want someone, doesn't he? It doesn't override his free will to appear to Saul on the road to Damascus and say, hey, believe in me. I'm the one that you've been persecuting. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. God went out of his way to win Saul, didn't he? He didn't force Saul, though. And this is the thing that confuses some people about this idea. God has every right to pursue someone harder than someone else. God gives everybody an opportunity. But you know, if he pursues some people more than others, that's God's right. It's like me saying, I'm going to give everybody in this room $50. And then I go up to Sophia and I say, Sophia, here's your 50 and here's 2,000 more. Audrey, here's your 50 and here's 150 more. And then Mason comes up and he says, hey, pastor, this is unfair. I only got 50. Well, you could have gotten zero. What I do with my money is my business. 
And if I want to give 2,050 or 200, I think was, uh, and 50, that's, that's my business. I gave everybody something. If God wants to, God, God has given everybody, He's called everybody through His Spirit. He has given everybody revelation enough to know Him, to accept Him if they will do so. But if God wants to take certain people and say that guy can be used, I'm going to go out of my way to win him. And God, knowing the man, knows what it will take to win him. God can do that. And so you have one guy who feels like God pursued him to death. right? That God pursued him to the very end of himself and God brought everything and anything into his life to win him. And he says, I can't... This was not... Uh, C.S. Lewis said that he, he you know, came kicking and screaming into the kingdom. The idea that God pursued him to the end of himself. And some people will say, well, does that sound like the testimony of a man who, who loves Christ? That he, nobody comes kicking and screaming to, to, to the cross. Well, I don't know, but I can tell you this, that man was a believer. I don't agree with a lot of his theology, but you can't read mere Christianity without, without understanding that he knew Christ as his Savior. Which means what? What that means is that he, and, and, you know, we can't know his heart. We don't know what it means that he came kicking and screaming, you know, to, to salvation. But we can know this, that God pursued Saul in a very unique way. God appeared to him. God blinded him. God spoke to him. And God told him exactly what he wanted him to do. Because God knew that that's what it would take for Saul to become a believer. He influenced Saul's volition. But that doesn't mean he forced Saul into anything. Lights just dim. <laughs> I know, there's one there, there's one there. We, I need to get up on the ladder and risk my neck. Does that make sense? And I think that this is an important point. So thank you for bringing it up. Because we, when you hear people say, look, look at how much God pursued me, you, you're tend to, you, you want to kind of go in that direction of saying, yeah, I feel like God does predestinate people to salvation. Because, I mean, look at this guy. And he was on the complete wrong path, and then it was like God just smacked him with a two-by-four and turned him in the other direction. It's almost as if God lifted him out of the path of destruction and placed him on the path of righteousness. And we can look at that and recognize that. And, you know, it's God's prerogative. If, if God wanted to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to appear to a man to convince him like he had to do with Thomas. And yet Jesus rebuked Thomas, didn't he? He said, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are they who, having not seen, believe. Thomas, I have come to you and now you believe. I need you to believe. I'm not going to override. I'm not going to just tweak something in your mind. Oh, I believe all of a sudden, right? But I'll do what's necessary to bring you to a belief. I'll appear. That was the condition. Thomas said, unless I see his hands, unless I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Jesus says, if that's what it takes, I'll do it. But, you've lost something, Thomas, that those who are willing to believe, like a child, those who are willing to having not seen believe, you've lost something. You've lost a specialness. You've, your, your, your faith needed so much more and that doesn't mean that he's not going to make it to heaven. That doesn't mean he can't be blessed by the Lord or anything. But, but there's, there's a blessing to those who having not seen believe. That's what Jesus said. Blessed are they who having not seen believe. 
And so that's influencing our will. But not overriding our will. And I think we see that many times in Scripture. Even, we could even say Jonah again, right? Uh, took a lot before God finally brought Jonah to the end of himself to where he submitted himself to the will of God. But God did what was necessary to bring Jonah to a place of volitional obedience. He never, ever overrode, tweaked something in Jonah and said, oh, I'm going to go. I didn't want to go, but now I'm going to go. Or something to that effect. No, God, God used circumstances to direct Jonah's will into his own. And, and, and this is the thing. Blessed are we who, having not had to be tweaked by God, believe. Because this is kind of the thing with that. Typically, if God has to bring us to a place that He wants us to be, it's going to be unpleasant. If, if we are not willing to open the Bible and just believe it, and God wants us to get there to where we do believe something that we're unwilling to believe just by reading or by listening to our authorities, a lot of times He has to get us there the hard way. If you're not going to believe by listening, by hearing, by reading, you're going to believe when you have to go through the fire. I'm going to show you what you need to know. If you're not going to trust that I'll do this or I'll do that or, or if you're not going to believe that you need to not sin in this area or that area, well then, let me, let me uh, refine that out of you. And sometimes that means bringing us to the very end of ourselves. And if we don't bring ourselves to the end of ourselves, God may bring us to the end of ourselves. And that's typically a pretty unpleasant process. Now, it's in our best good. It's in love. It's like the child, right? The child who will not obey. Okay, if they had just obeyed to begin with, then mom and dad would have been, it would have been done. It's done. But instead, consequences. Instead, problems. Instead, chastening. And mom and dad give the chastening and the child is still obstinate. And they say, look, if you'll just obey, if you'll just submit your will, this is over. Have to, we're dealing with it lately with some foods. If you'll just eat the food, it's done. Just, just put the bite in your mouth and it's done. No, 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 no. Okay, so now they're miserable. Now they're hungry. Now they have to wait until breakfast. to, And then they have to eat the same food for breakfast because they didn't eat it for dinner. And they're hungry because they won't just do what they need to do. And God, God will sometimes do that for us. If you won't do what you need to do, God will keep bringing circumstances that show you the need until such time as He brings you to the end of yourself and then your will, when you finally submit your will to His, then it's over. So yeah, roundabout way of answering that question. I don't believe God overrides our will with the exception of as we talk about that, the overriding will of God, right? Which is circumstances where, like we're saying with, with um, Jesus Christ being crucified, nothing was going to stop that. And any man that would have tried would have been overridden to some way, shape, or form. And we can see different times where the overriding will of God is possible. 
but that's not typical, um, except in extreme, extremely, you know, awful, disobedient, wicked circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Well, Satan is overruled, but with Satan it's different, right? Because they're confirmed in their unbelief, and so there's no sense in God trying to bring their will around because the, the, the wicked angels are confirmed in their wickedness. So God will certainly, at, at every turn that's necessary, override the will of Satan. But as far as angelic beings are concerned, that would be an entirely different ballgame because they're confirmed in their, in their direction. They're either the elect angels or they're the, the angels of darkness. So yeah, other questions or thoughts?